Welcome back, everyone. It's another episode of Out Your Backdoor Podcast. I'm your host, Jace Martinetto, and it has been an exciting week. <laughs> a lot of stuff going on, a lot of changes happening, and uh, yeah, I can't wait for the uh, upcoming weeks here because we got some big stuff coming up for uh, Out Your Backdoor, and honestly, once this corona crap is passed, we got we got some really exciting, fun fun outside activities and things for everyone to do and gatherings and events and i got all sorts of stuff on the on the uh i don't know what you call it horizon i guess if that's what you call it with the corona we never know we don't know what's going on anymore (laughs) but anyway it's a beautiful saturday it's a great day for uh for out your back door episode and it's a great day to get outside and do something so per usual tune in and uh after the episode go go have some fun go do something get outside go go hike go walk go do whatever but uh yeah anyway i can't say a whole lot for this episode that the uh title can't really say for itself i mean this we're diving into the boundary waters nick bales and i we go way back we go back to the environmental and outdoor education program at university of minnesota duluth umd we get to talk a little bit about the program, we reminisce on some college times, and then, uh, yeah, we get right into it. Uh, folk tales and hidden gems in the Boundary Waters and, you know, what it's like to be a guide, what it's like to be a, a gear manager for Ely Outfitting Company, and, yeah, Nick was a great guest to have on the show. Couldn't couldn't have asked for a better guy uh, to talk Boundary Waters. He He just has such a deep passion, and and uh, a very, very deep appreciation for the whole area up there and and for Ely. And, you know, he he has a really, really cool story because, you know, he grew up Twin Cities, bigger city uh, type kid and now finds himself, you know, took a step down population-wise to Duluth and yet again to Ely and has kind of found himself in this wilderness and environmental lifestyle now and... And yeah, it's just a cool story, and he's got some really great insight, and he he has a deep passion for fishing and and, and uh, recreating in the Boundary Waters in more than one way. So, you know, he has a lot of insight, a lot of good angles, and uh, on top of that, y'all get the beautiful uh, tunes of Charlie Parr this episode to carry you through the uh, transitions. So, uh, kick back and enjoy that, and. Enjoy the Charlie Parr music, enjoy the uh, Boundary Waters, enjoy the stories, and uh, yeah, here's what Nick Bales and Ely Outfitting Company have going on right out your back door. We saw two huge moose right away in the morning. We had all the fly fishing poles, we went out, we learned to cast, we took the day, we went up to Knife River. To come to Duluth and have people be like, yo, you want to go rock climbing? I was like, huh, hell yeah, I want to go rock climbing. (laughs) I'm a gear manager in the summer primarily, doing a little bit of kind of broad shot management as well. Um, Up near the Frost River, up north of of Cherokee, kind of out of Sawbill. Totally. Yeah, more, more rugged, less people. I'm happy we were able to chat a little bit about that. 
So thanks for having me, Jace. Uh, yeah, my name is Nick Bales. I work for Ely Outfitting Company and Boundary Waters Guide Service up, up on Main Main Street in Ely. Um, so we are a full guide service down to just a canoe rental and everything in between, um, kind of specializing on guide service, fishing trips, complete trips, things like that. So I am from the Twin Cities originally. Uh, Jason and I met at the University of Minnesota Duluth. I went through the same program together, um, shared a lot of hobbies and whatnot, and got close that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so on top of obviously the boundary waters and whatnot, uh, you know, you grew up right here in Minnesota. What, what are some of the, what are some of the recreational, uh, activities that you grew up doing and, and what do you do now kind of for recreational activities? Yeah. So it kind of changed a little bit throughout the year. So the, the, the big start I got growing up was a lot of ATVing, um, and grouse hunting. Nice. Just something that my family was, was really into. We went up to an Imagine State Forest multiple times a year for, you know, going on 28 years now. Um, so that was kind of my first exposure to being outdoors and, and kind of being free outdoors to explore um, and recreate. Nice. Uh, that I had a very similar kind of upbringing with, you know, kind of hunting and the hobbies and recreation that I did outdoors kind of revolved around, you know, hunting traditions and fishing traditions and stuff like that. It, uh, it was, it's kind of funny. Everybody I've talked to some, some piece of the childhood or the upbringing or whatever it might be, uh, you know, there's always something to relate to. And, uh, the crazy thing with me is after a while, you know, I went to UMD and all of a sudden my mindset switched from, you know, this outdoor lifestyle being a hunting and fishing, you know, mentality to like literally just being outside. Like I just, I I found a new passion for being outside and found a new passion for exploring Minnesota and all that I had to offer. Uh, did you, did you find a similar situation at all? Did, did your mindset and your, uh, uh, opinions about outdoor recreation shift once you kind of got into UMD and into your college years? Yeah, I'd say honestly, it's, pretty much the exact same thing you know i came in just having done a lot of fishing a lot of hunting um and knowing that i enjoyed those things a lot but it felt like so many doors opened when i went to umd as far as you know different ways to recreate and enjoy you know what nature has to offer around us whether it be hiking biking on the awesome trails that that duluth has Right. Um, a lot of fishing on the rivers up there. I had never fly fished before. It was kind of foreign to me. Um, we were taught that in school, and you can't really beat that. So just, yeah, it, it opened up a lot of avenues and really kind of opened my eyes to, wow, this is, this is pretty endless. Yeah, totally. And that and that's that was Duluth for me, man. Like, I, you know, I grew up in Grand Rapids and wound up in Duluth. And before long, I, I realized that, wow was I living in such a small world in Grand Rapids? And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I came here, I was exposed to, you know, paddling and, uh, now I'm into the whitewater paddling and, um, you know, hiking. I didn't even realize the superior hiking trail was a thing. I didn't understand that like long distance hiking trails were even a thing. Like I, I had never heard of it. I know. So it was like, you know, to come to Duluth and have people be like, yo, you want to go rock climbing? I was like, huh, 
hell yeah, I want to go rock climbing. <laughs> I've yeah. never done it before. Of course I want to go rock climbing. <laughs> it was so. definitely a, a paradigm shift for me too. you know, growing up in the cities in, in the suburbs and, you know, close to St. Paul, Minneapolis, it was a lot of, a lot of my outdoor time was team sports and things like that rather than hiking and, and all that stuff. So right. going up to UMD was definitely a, a radical shift. And I don't think that, I necessarily stopped doing those things. It was more of just doing everything and right. kind of cumulatively, cumulatively spending a lot more time outdoors. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that that's like you know, even you're quickly exposed to this recreational world when you come to Duluth. But then, uh, you know, for folks like you and I, we we're actually in a program literally called environmental and outdoor education and or we were you know we graduated from that program and and putting ourselves in in that world even you know it, it opens up even more opportunities like the recreation sport and outdoor program uh were, were you involved at all in rsop did you do any of their yeah. stuff yeah i did yeah i, I led a, a few various things um boundary waters trips kind of freshman orientation type stuff Paddleboard yoga on Lake Superior, um, fishing skills classes, sewing, a bunch of random, you know, skills and things that we kind of acquired along the way. Where did you, uh, where, where did you get introduced to fly fishing? Was that through RSOP or? It was, yeah. So, well, actually it was through, um, I believe outdoor skills when we did you have- had to we you know we had a unit where we we yeah. had all those fly fishing poles we went out we learned to cast we took the day we went up to knife river that's right so it was a combination of that and then that same semester i was actually fulfilling my gym credit which was a fishing skills course um with the legendary jim knapp um anyone that knows him <laughs> Napper. He's, he's a pretty big he's a pretty big figure in the in the umd hockey world and and the outdoor recreation world it's- i don't know if i've ever talked to anyone with as many hours um, with a fishing pole in their hand as, as Jim did. So the dude I was taking his owns three ice castles. So yeah, and, and too many boats. Yeah, yeah. No, he, and, and he's a great guy, and he's a good teacher, and he is passionate about sharing that knowledge, um, Very which much. was great. Yeah, that that was I, I loved Nap. He, uh, it's funny because I met Nap through class obviously having him at class and and uh him and i really hit it off because he was one of the first teachers i was able to just sit down and and you know bs about fishing or whatever it might be and 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 that passion becomes very apparent in him when when talking to him because you, you you realize it's not just him teaching you a skill it's him sharing that skill with you because he's so deeply passionate about it and that goes such a long way with uh you know, especially I think our the EOE environmental and outdoor ed program. I th- I think uh, that passion drives a lot of what we learn. So I'm I'm happy to I'm very honored that I was able to learn from uh, Jim Knapp. But even more yeah, so, the dude the dude's unique. Uh, he goes way back to like uh, high school hockey. My uncles played high school hockey for him. Uh, 
in up on the Iron Range in Hoyt Lakes or Aurora. I can't remember which. Yeah. Masabi East High School is where he was teaching. But, yeah, I mean, he's he's been all over the place. There's not many people in the Northland that you could talk to that wouldn't know Jim Knapp. It's it's pretty crazy yeah, it's how true. much he has his hands in. But anyway. And I kind of I had a similar experience to you. So I actually was going to go to the University of Wisconsin-Superior, um, and they kind of canceled the program that I had joined about a month before the fall semester was supposed to start. So I scrambled to enroll at UMD and I actually just went into the offices. Um, Nap happened to be the only person in the office. And I asked him for a little bit of advice and ended up having an hour and a half chat with him that really kind of told me that that's the program that I should be in. Right. Um, and, and it was kind of a jumping off point. And I'll never forget how passionate he was. And, you know, he pulled me in, you know, physically and metaphorically he sat me down in his office and 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 really kind of helped me piece together where i was at at that point totally huge huge shout out to uh nap and and thing about the eoe program that's i'm yeah. happy i'm happy we were able to chat a little bit about that because yeah. not not many people I, I mean as you know you graduate you go out in the real world they say oh what do you do well i graduated with a eoe degree and nope nobody is like what the you know, no, nobody knows yeah. what the hell that is. So I'm, yep. I'm happy we're able to talk about it a bit because I think it, my parents still are kind of confused on what I do. Dude, my parents, I convinced them for how many years that this was a thing that I I was uh, going to be an EOE major and this is what I was yeah. going to do with my life. And dude, I don't even think I knew what I wanted to do with my nope. life. But, nope. but I, I enjoyed it. That's all I knew. I, that's exactly it. Uh, I, I graduated and I finished everything up and I wouldn't have traded any of those experiences or the people I met or, or the times I had for the world. I mean, being a part yeah. of that EOE program is really something special. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, with that in mind, you know, we finished up school, you, you know, moved on to bigger, better things. Did you ever think you were going to end up in, in Ely? So yes and no, <laughs> I thought it was a possibility, um, on a seasonal basis, you know, spending the summer up here right. guiding, possibly working for an outfitter, you know, a number of things or spending a winter up here guiding dog sled trips or, you know, something similar to that. But I never expected to spend, you know, a couple of years up here, um, at least while I was going through school. Um, but it's always a place I've been drawn to just having good experiences here. I love the boundary waters. Um, from where I'm sitting right now, I could, I could be at a boundary waters lake and about, 15 minutes at the most um which is awesome. pretty priceless totally. um yeah so definitely never expected to to be living here um but here we are right and what a great place to end up to right i mean yeah uh, yeah i have no complaints right i the 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 people the culture and everything about Ely is is worth the experience. I, I encourage anybody to go go up to Ely, even if you're running up to have a have a beer at the boathouse or get some duck wings. You know, I mean, it's Ooh, duck wings. Yep. <laughs> yep. Any chance I get to go to Ely, I I try to go just because it there's a lot of peacefulness and, and a lot of a lot of really good people up there. So. Yep. Bigger than the rest. 
got the doolies on his pickup When the dealer gave him a choice And he lost his job on the build site Now he's a struggling to feed his boy In the red cedar grows and the red cedar flows And long after you're gone It's outlasting you Yeah. What does the day in the life of a gear manager look like? So basically, big picture, um, I, I, I'm a gear manager in the summer primarily, doing a little bit of kind of broad shop management as well. Um, so it looks like a little bit of everything that you would expect at an outfitter from greeting guests, issuing permits, going over detailed navigation and map advice, um, you know, getting them oriented, asking safety questions, answering all sorts of different questions that that anyone might have from a person who's been to the boundary waters every year for 20 years to a person that's never, you know, stepped foot outside of city life or never right. stepped in a tent. Um, so it's kind of a, a broad range, um, which I think is, is awesome and kind of speaks volumes to, to the recreational opportunities that we have up here. But at the same time, as a gear manager, my main responsibility is to be packing out for all these groups, kind of complete packages, gear packages, all sorts of different stuff, food for for their extended trips, um, everything, going through that gear with them, maintaining inventory, going through and fixing repair gear, researching new gear, buying new gear, um, working with our local gear manufacturers on getting stuff repaired, getting new new inventory in, um, and, and, and all sorts of stuff like that, as well as, you know, doing lesson plans like a portage demonstration for guests, tying canoes onto their vehicles, how to string a fishing pole, um, general fishing strategies. It's kind of everything that you would associate with a wilderness trip, sure. um, especially for people who have never done one before. So you're like as a gear manager, kind of the behind the scenes, uh, maker of everything happening, huh? <laughs> I mean, somebody calls and, and, and there you are, you know, you got it all there, set to go, ready to go. I mean, uh, I do have a question and I mean this, uh, I, I, I mean this in a really good way. Um, uh, how long would you like, how long on average would you say like a, you're able to have a stove or a stove, an operating stove, uh, you know, if you if you unpackage one and you use that for uh, outfitting and uh, people for renting and stuff like that, uh, how how long does that stove stay good or or like your equipment for that matter? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and it all really varies on the user um, sure. and the care that they put into it. And before that, the knowledge that we give to them as far as how to keep your gear and go to order. Right. Um, kind of, it kind of sets the precedence for how they're going to treat and respect the, the gear that they take. Um, the one thing that's awesome is everyone thinks a Kevlar canoe will break if you look at it. <laughs> so people are usually extremely careful with those. Um, nice. That's obviously the most expensive thing we have around. But at the same time, you, you'd still be surprised some of the things we've seen of, of people dragging a canoe across a three-quarter mile portage with their bag in it. <laughs> you see it all through the years. Um, I'm sure. But so stoves specifically, we use a Primus, I think it's called a camp trail stove. It's a pretty basic, you know, just the, the burner mm-hmm. and the regulator, and you strap it onto an isobutane tank, 
turn the switch and light it. Um, I think they're about 15 bucks. They work really nice for what we do. Nice. And I, I use one myself, but they don't tend to have many issues other than two things. One, you get sand or rock or debris or something in the jet, which is super easy to clean out. But for someone that may not know that it makes it so the stove doesn't function pretty much at all. Sure. Yeah. So it's an easy fix. The other thing is if this, if it gets threaded incorrectly onto the stove body itself, it's pretty much shot. It's, the receiver is pretty cheap. I would assume aluminum, sure. and once you can't screw it on tight, it's it's pretty much done for. I gotcha. So we do a really good job of obviously keeping every single part that we can use and combining pieces together. Yep. Um, while still making sure that the the gear we're sending out is top quality and in really good working order. I test every stove before it goes out, yep. just for peace of mind for me and the guest, obviously. Right. The, the, um, the reason I asked uh, originally is is because uh, I, I I had a similar job uh, as a as a trip uh, well trip director for a summer camp so essentially uh, a wilderness director in terms of sending yeah. kids out you know basically doing the same thing you're doing uh, planning trips organizing them buying the food getting the gear getting them sent out uh, and it's just insane how how people treat gear that isn't theirs and and yeah. i don't and i don't mean to come down on anybody but i thought you know if 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 we could bring a little light to that that people might you know treat treat their rented gear and their and their leased gear with a little more respect because it starts to add up totally and uh you know it's just one of those things that i think people have a tendency to rent gear use and abuse it and return it you know so yeah, we we see basically two people. It's the person that is like, okay, I'm renting this gear if I damage it or treat it not like I would treat my gear. I'm probably going to have to pay for it. Yep. Or the people that are saying, I'm already paying for it. I'll do what I want with it. Exactly. Um, which generally isn't a huge concern for us right. because of what we do on the background of, of telling them, you know, be really careful with your gear. Don't do this. Don't do that yep. type of thing. Um, the big thing that we see is people cooking with our pot sets, the stainless steel pot sets over the fire. Oh, and they yeah. come back absolutely Char, covered yeah. in pine tar and, and, and pot black. Yep. <laughs> um, so we, we actually do charge a $10 fee if pots come back that, that way. And almost all the time, even if they come back black, they'll be like, you know what? I'll wash it right here. No problem. Yeah. Once in a while we get a really tired group. It's like 10 bucks. Yeah. I'll, I'll gladly pay that. It takes, <laughs> It takes our employees, myself included, uh, a lot of elbow grease to get that back to stainless steel. <laughs> right. That, uh, but, it's kind of funny, the, the folks you see coming out of the boundary waters, the different yeah. the, the, the different reactions, responses, uh, mentalities. There's some folks that are just ready to turn around and head right back in, and then you get these groups where you can tell that they had nothing but struggle for the whole yeah. time they were in there, you know? <laughs> And you get everything in between for sure. Right. So for context for us last year, I believe we had somewhere north of 500 groups come through our shop in the summer. I think it was like 47 different states and 12 to 13 different countries. So That uh, in itself is so cool. (laughs) It's amazing. Yeah. You you know, I've, I worked with the people that I remember last year from, Japan, China, Switzerland, wow. Poland, just all over the place. And, and to get these, the, the cultures together in, in the different 
you know, beliefs and, and different experience levels and all that I think is, is pretty brilliant. For sure. Um, so let's, let's move back towards, uh, being in the boundary waters itself. So, yeah. uh, what, because this is one of the biggest things in, in my honest to God opinion, this right here could make or break an entire experience. What is yeah. your go to meal while having people out, out in the boundary waters? Or if you're guiding, what's, what's your go to meal? I, I love this question because it definitely make or bake, make or break the trip for sure. Totally. Um, and I definitely eat the best on trail when I do guided trips. We, you know, our, our setup is awesome as far as including fresh food, food, um, and fruits and vegetables and whatnot. My two go-to meals, one biscuits and gravy, Ooh. kind of self-explanatory, oh, yeah. bring a little sriracha and, and it's, it's great. Any meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner. The second is stroganoff and crappie. Wow. Shore lunch. Shore lunch crappie with stroganoff. Um, and beef and mushroom stroganoff is probably my favorite. Nice. Yeah, it's, uh, that's interesting. Wow. I've never even heard of that one before yet. Stroganoff. That's actually a first for me in the Boundary Waters because, uh, well, I guess you, you always make things similar to that. You know, a lot of times, you know, if you have a sauce or you or you have uh, noodles and stuff, a lot of times yeah. everything just gets combined and and that's what you eat. You know, but yeah, but yeah, I've never. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take the longer that. you stay out there, right? I'm I'm definitely doing stroganoff next time I'm in the Boundary Waters. Some some beef and mushrooms, gravy. Wow, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> yep, really good. Totally. My uh, my go to. Um, it's a little something I invented when I was working at Camp Mishawaka as their trip director. Uh, it's I call them I call them camp burritos, and I invented it on the last day of a trip. One day when we, well, the the, the other counselor looks at me. He goes, "We're out of food," and I was like, "No, no, we're not. <laughs> no chance are we out of food on the last day. Like not happening." He's like, "No, we don't have any meals left," and I was like, "Oh, well, that's entirely different. Like, let's that's find let's, let's let's figure something out, you know." <laughs> so. So I took a burrito, uh, tort- or a tortilla shell burrito style, uh, threw some red beans and rice on there. Um, always been a go-to for Camp Mishawaka, the red beans and rice. We had a little uh, kielbasa sausage left. I chopped that up, threw that on. We had a little tiny bit of cheese, and I and I shredded a fair amount on everybody's burrito and uh camp burritos it's simple red beans and rice summer sausage cheese and or uh kielbasa sausage turns out fantastic and it's so simple but holds you over too it's delicious (laughs) that doesn't sound sound too crazy we definitely uh we ate some some pretty funky stuff around day eight or nine teddy roosevelt national park so oh totally (laughs) you kind of just like you said whatever's left gets thrown thrown in a pot my favorite, my favorite, one of my favorite EOE memories was out on, out on trail in Teddy Roosevelt. I had literally just got done talking about how I've never had an issue with spilling food on trail and how I've never had to be that guy to scoop, scoop my mac and cheese up out of the dirt and eat it, you know, and it, yeah. and it wasn't, but literally, you know, a couple minutes later we finished cooking and we were having spaghetti and, uh, 
walking over to sit down in the group, tripped, all my spaghetti went everywhere. <laughs> so I had a nice uh, dirt seasoned spaghetti that night for the first time ever, and uh, it was pretty funny. I-, I had literally just told the group about it maybe maybe five minutes before it happened. So <laughs> that's pretty good. here so so you you said that that meals well we both reiterated meals can make or break a a experience in the boundary waters um so would you say that cooking is one of your biggest strengths or what what is you know your biggest strength while bringing people out into the boundary waters what what is the thing that people can't get enough of when they're on trail with nick sure for me it's it's two things um, that I kind of pride myself on. Um, one is, is the fishing and just a knowledge of general strategies, a willingness to sit in a boat all day and, and help my guests, you know, catch, you know, potentially the fish of a lifetime or just to have a good time. Um, cause obviously that's the number one goal is, is to ensure that they're having a worthwhile time. And a lot of these trips are extremely memorable for for these folks um and i just try to keep that on the forefront that ties into the second thing which for me is just the soft skills the the interpersonal communication the storytelling the experience sharing you know reading the landscape and and telling them you know what they're seeing why they're seeing it why it it means a lot to me and and letting them kind of foster that that same sense sure so what would you say your uh, uh, favorite thing is then? You know, those are your strengths and, and whatnot, and, that, and that's what you're best at. But what's, what's, your, what's your all-time favorite thing about, about guiding? Not necessarily the boundary waters, but, but guiding itself. For me, it, it kind of stems back to my past, growing up and having kind of a lack of self-confidence and self-reliance and, and building that over time. Sure. For me, it's it's seeing that these guests do that themselves. They're in a foreign landscape that maybe they've been to once, maybe they've never been to, maybe they've never dreamed of, and kind of seeing them build that confidence and that skill set and and that kind of base um, wilderness like exploration feel um, is probably my favorite thing. My least favorite thing is obviously that I'm a, a little out of shape and uh, I get tired easy sometimes. I, I'm right with you there. Uh, <clears throat> you know, having, having uh, honestly, for me, when I was working at Camp Mishawaka and I was in the Boundary Waters regularly and I was guiding and doing all that stuff, it was, my my, my all-time favorite thing was just simply that, uh, that connection that y- you can kind of guide and not necessarily, um, you know, the connection to your clients or the individuals that you're guiding, but guiding their experience towards, uh, connecting to the land and connecting to the boundary waters and finding that unique thing about the boundary waters that reaches out to them and helping guide that mentality was, was what I ultimately liked the best was because uh, the, the tone that you set is so impactful on 
on your clients and and the people that you're bringing in and and not a lot of people think about that because it, it yeah. does on on the regular you know if you're doing this regularly it becomes a job you know it, it, yeah. it can easily become a job and you forget about why you were passionate about coming in and doing it in the first place always reminding yourself that you're in control of that morale and that uh and that that tone is is huge because it if you set the good tone at the beginning of a trip it'll it should carry out for for good ways you know it, it goes a long way so yeah I agree. I mean, you're you're essentially the leader of the trip at the same time you're you're working. Yeah. And you got to keep that in mind. One thing that we do is we ask all of our guests on these trips, what are your goals? What do you want to get out of it? Because for everybody it's different. Some people just want to sit outside and not have a cell phone in their hand and that's awesome. Some people want to catch a huge fish, some people want to travel really far. Some people want to build confidence in themselves. Some people want to have a bonding experience with a family member. And for us to kind of know that and be able to foster those experiences is obviously very valuable. That's cool that you that you take that that approach because yeah, that's that that's the that's the type of uh, oh what what do I want to call it? That's that's the type of service that people are looking for when they when they come yeah. to the Boundary Waters. So absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, here's a fun little question for you: If there was a zombie apocalypse, would you hunker down in the Boundary Waters? Yeah, another great question. Absolutely. Um, so, two parts. Ultimately, yes. Um, but I have an affinity towards my family, and I would probably have to go uh, and bring them up as well. So that's what I was thinking. Yeah, you know, I've, I've always thought about it. Got got everything you need um, in the house, ready to go. Just gotta throw my cats in a little kennel, load up the car, load up the canoe, and and whatnot so yeah yeah grab your family and friends and go go find a spot yeah. to to enjoy yeah <laughs> yeah i've always i've always been into the whole the whole zombie the genre and totally and growing up as a naive teenager uh, you know i always thought it was just a matter of days before it happened um, <laughs> we could only it, hope right <laughs> yeah yeah no it's funny and, and everybody everybody that I that I'm friends with that have the similar mindset. It's always you know we've been prepared for this forever. It's just kind of funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't. I can't really think of a, a less populated, um, you know, more hard to access area than deep in the Boundary Waters. So yeah, unless you push a little further and hop into the Quetico, but but yep. but that's yeah. Yep. I mean, I, I've never been to the Quetico. I heard it's awesome. I heard it's it's the Boundary Waters, but uh, less maintained and more wildernessy at that yeah more more rugged less people yeah. um sometimes better fishing experiences sure. more pictographs things like that more more historical stuff but honestly the two are, are very similar the, the main difference is just kind of how they're governed right uh let's let's move back towards the uh the outfitter again if you will the uh, other than you know, you, you and I both know that if if you want to make it, if you want to strike gold in this in this world, you got to get a degree in EOE because it's all about the money in EOE. But no, I'm just kidding. The, uh, yeah, right. Other other than making absolute bank, you know, working working and doing what you do, what what are what are the other major benefits to this job? I know we've talked about a few, but uh, but you know, we we're not in this for the money. We don't do our work for the money, and you know, there's right. obviously something that draws us to the type of work that we do so so what is that for you what are the benefits to to being a guide and and uh gear manager yeah so obviously you know going into the eoe program we kind of leave the 
leave the paycheck at the door uh, per se, right. but you know, we're really gaining experiences that I would trade for a portion of my paycheck any day. Um, yeah. So for me, it's just the abundance of recreation opportunities, whether it be fishing, you know, boundary waters, travel, snowmobiling, hunting, um, kind of just the area I live in is, is a big benefit. Um, and then just being able to, to hone my knowledge on the boundary waters and, and the wilderness in general, um, I think is, is a huge benefit for me professionally. Um, it's kind of a career investment where others might not see it as so. Right. That's people. I've gotten the same response out of people. Pretty much every person I've told that I have this degree, they go, well, how, how are you making money in that? And ultimately if I could give the response that I want to, to everybody, I would just simply say, because I don't give a shit about money, but, (laughs) but like, you know, it's, it's, it's not that simple too. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, And that's kind of a generalization too. You know, my, my pay is competitive and, and, and I am able to live comfortably. Right. Absolutely. um, And my student loan debt, um, that's a different story, but you know, just generally speaking, I make enough to enjoy, what I do and exactly. make it make sense. Yep. Yep. And that's, I honestly, for, for folks like you and I, and, and a lot of people tuning in like that, that is kind of the mindset that is kind of the, you know, uh, there's more to life than just making money. So yeah. how, how can you structure your life around that? You know? So it's yep. totally, but, uh, does, does, uh, does Ely Outfitters company, do they, do they, um, hire anybody that doesn't have a college degree? Do you guys hire yeah. high schoolers or uh, summer help, stuff like that? We do, yeah, definitely. So kind of a, a broad range as far as, as people we hire. So we have a high, schooler, a high schooler, a local kid, great kid that's worked with us for, I mean, I, he's 16 now. I believe he's been with the company since he was like 11 or 12 um, in some capacity, obviously it was mowing the lawn and, and helping out and stuff like that. Then, um, he's kind of blossomed into a full time employee around the shop. Um, which is awesome. We, you know, some of our manager jobs require college experience in a, in, in a related field. Um, but we definitely hire people that don't necessarily have a, a college degree. Um, people that are working towards a degree, um, or something like that. It, a lot of it is just the experience and the passion in the field, um, and the willingness to help people out. Totally. That's it. I, I love, I love when companies give people an opportunity, especially in this field to get in early and, and be able to work their way up like that, because there's some folks that, you know, they, they might opt to not even go to college because they were able to find a company or find a, a support system work wise and able to, you know, kind of hop, hop through the loops in terms of what like the everyday society yeah. says you need to do as a career. And, and I find that a lot in, in, in our type of work because, because a lot of people in our type of work, it seems don't have an exact direction they want to go. They have, they know they have a passion for the land and the recreation and everything else. But like, uh, it seems like, you know, very few people that come through the EOE program are dead set on what they want to do. So, uh, 
you know, to, to allow a kid to come in early and experience and to work and to see that there's uh, other forms of work other than just, you know, working for public works or, you know, having your summer job at the DQ or whatever it be. And not, not to say that those jobs are bad by any means, but there is an adventurous and recreational type of, uh, of career out there that you can start at a very young age. And that, I just think it's cool that, uh, you know, that there even is still an interest of, of younger kids wanting to do these types of jobs because these, the oh, yeah. these are the most rewarding jobs, in my opinion. You Not only do you have yeah. to work hard for what you do, but you get the reward of being out in the in the wilderness and being out on trail or whatever it might be. So, Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, and this, this kid that works for us, is, for what he is doing in his age, he's probably getting paid more than anyone else around him because he has the experience. Right. And then yep. he's done things like organizing groups to go to Duluth to, you know, stand up for different things that they believe in in the community. Um, totally. And it, it's really cool to kind of see that manifest. And like you're saying, to see a younger generation that is focusing on investing in these experiences and, and protecting these experiences. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that's awesome. Like you say, it gives them a direction and a voice too, and something to stand for, and that's that's yeah. all great. I love that. So, yeah. Um, you want to talk about Ely a little bit? Yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely interesting, small town, close knit. Right. It's know everyone type town it, it seems um, like it's the type of town every time you're in town there's something going on i mean the blueberry festival the the snow sculpture festivals the beard fest yep. i mean there's always something going on in ely i, yep. I just i absolutely love the town uh, yeah in the farmers markets all summer 70 percent of cars you see driving up and down the street in the summer have a canoe or a boat strapped onto them in some fashion yeah totally. um, all through the winter you see big trucks pulling huge huge trailers full of um sled dogs it's 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 pretty cool that is awesome where's uh in in your opinion where where's the best place to get a a beer and a bite in ely yeah so two places um my favorite food place in ely that also has beer is insular restaurant um good atmosphere good menu large local selection of, of beers and crafts, um, which is pretty sweet. Um, the other one is the boathouse, as you mentioned. The duck wings are really good. They totally. grew their own beer in-house. Um, another nice atmosphere. Catch myself watching sports a lot there it's kind um, of... throughout the year. And my personal favorite in town is our Vietnamese restaurant, Oriental Orchid. I didn't even know there was a Vietnamese place in Ely, but now that I They're know, incredible. that's the next place yep. I'm going when I'm in town. <laughs> no, great food, really fresh food, nice. great people. Um, I eat there all too often. Nice. That's 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 great. The uh, the other thing about the boathouse, if you're pretty much anywhere in Minnesota and you're mentioned you're going to Ely to get a blueberry beer pretty much everybody knows what you're referring to so yep. <laughs> i love yeah, it that's for sure not to mention yeah that blueberry blonde can't can't beat it yeah. uh, I, i'm it doing pretty good every thursday uh on the social media i'm gonna be doing a minnesota or midwest beer or liquor review for that matter i'll do wines or whiskeys or whatever but 
probably do a lot of beers, and uh, I can't wait to. I'm I, I'm gonna get in contact with the boathouse, and hopefully we can maybe do a special segment on them or something, and and do a beer review and stuff. Because yeah, I I love the blueberry blonde. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh what was it like going from? I mean, you 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 went from the Twin Cities to Duluth down to Ely. You kind of took a step down population wise with each move you made. So what what was yeah. that like? Um, yeah, definitely, definitely interesting. Um, going from the cities to Duluth, the first thing I noticed was the lack of traffic and how nice that was. <laughs> um, Duluth is, is pretty underrated as far as where it's located in 10 minutes in any direction. There are amazing recreational opportunities from hunting, biking, fishing, like ev- everything you can imagine right. with a, v- a view of the lake available for almost every one of those yeah um, it's something i didn't really respect until i moved up there and found myself outside there yeah um, i really fell in love with Duluth for a lot of those reasons i had probably the best grouse hunting spot ever just 20 minutes up the north shore from from duluth really good fishing i got into a lot of mountain biking so it was super cool um and then moving to ely it was it was a little bit of a shift you know, there's still some hiking opportunities that are great. Spent a lot more time sitting in a canoe. Um, spent a lot more time with a fishing pole in my hand, which was it's, it's been pretty sweet. What's what's but yeah? What what are some of the like say cultural or community uh, similarities and differences between Duluth and Ely? Because it seems like they're kind of becoming like you know. I don't know what you would call it, partner cities, sister cities, whatever you want to call it, because it seems like what's happening in Duluth or Ely is happening in both places, for that matter. Yeah, uh, it, you know, it, breweries, it the folk schools, all that happy stuff. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is the community sense is very similar um, when you talk about like the folk school, both the folk school here in Ely and the Duluth folk school are great. Yeah. Um, a lot of community-based stuff like farmers markets and things like that are what I've noticed. Um, a lot of trading of goods and, and services in the community. Um, I especially in Ely, I've noticed that a lot. Um, She's been serving food down in Bucks. Can't stand to see her there. Where well, the desperate men sit and drink. Stay a little too long at a lane. Uh, when was the first time you ever experienced the Boundary Waters? I think I was like eight or nine years old, and my family did a trip to Fall Lake every year. Um, and for me, that's you know, back then from the limited knowledge I have, that's what I remember of the Boundary Waters. We never went very far in. Um, we actually stayed at the campground, which is technically outside of the Boundary Waters. Right. So, you know, and I thought it was the full, deep wilderness experience. Yep. I just didn't know a ton growing up. Um, and I spent a lot of time at Voyager National Park, um, just west of here growing up, yep. which to me is a kind of a more wide open version of the Boundary Waters. Where I instead agree. of paddling, you take a motorboat. Yep. Um, a lot of really good experiences there. Very similar feel as far as, you know, the remoteness goes, um, which I, I really enjoyed. 
Yeah. Never had great luck fishing there, but again, I was always pretty young and, and <laughs> inexperienced in that in that realm. That's that's so funny because uh, my family goes to Cabotogama every year for fishing opener. We stay on the Ash River and we yeah and we uh, yeah we come in through the Narrows onto Cabotogama to go fishing and and uh, beautiful place, beautiful park. Uh, one of the most incredible areas to catch the Northern Lights. And I actually have a video of that on my website right now, too. So anybody tuning in that wants to see some awesome Minnesota Northern Lights, head over to the website and take a look at that video. But uh, but I agree with you. Fishing, I have never had the best luck up there. <laughs> it's, I, I know it gets fished hard. I know people are catching fish, and my dad never seems to struggle catching fish but i personally yeah. i cannot catch fish in voyagers <laughs> well i'm glad i'm not the only one because yeah I, I never had never had great luck at all <laughs> but anyway uh so so you, you, you so you had exposure to the boundary waters early on and obviously you've explored all over the place uh what's what's your favorite location in the boundary waters it's tough for me to narrow down because I like a lot of different places for different reasons. My favorite is probably um, up near the Frost River, up north of, of Cherokee, kind of out of Sawbill. Totally. Um, the reason being just an experience that I had there. Um, just one one morning, just really still waterways, even through the, the thin riverway. Mm-hmm. Um saw two huge moose right away in the morning oh, first man. time i'd ever seen any um it was just super memorable I it's what really everybody's like waiting kinda, for <laughs> yeah and it was right around the corner and and a friend of mine you know scott mellon um was like hey you know there's there's two moose ahead and and he was looking at his binoculars and to me it was just a big a pile of dirt from an, an overturned tree and right i was upset that he was trying to to bait me into thinking it was a moose and <laughs> He tossed me his binoculars, and and sure enough, there they were. Um, <laughs> Takes we your breath closer. away. Yeah, it did for sure. We got closer and closer and closer. We paddled around the corner, not ten feet from them. They couldn't couldn't care less. Um, it was just a cool experience. It was, it was a really sunny morning. The fog was out. The really jagged, you know, shoreline in that area just just really stuck out to me. Nice. That's and that's what it's all about. Honestly, that's like. You know, if I ask myself the same question, what's my favorite place in the Boundary Waters, it's like that. You know, my mind and my past experiences and everything else, they go to a specific place. But to be able to say that was my favorite is is a pretty bold statement. So I, I, I get where you're coming from there. That's to see a moose in the boundary waters and for that matter to have it be first thing in the morning when that stillness is all around and and you know the world hasn't quite woken up yet which is a completely different wake up than when you're in the city you know but the world just comes alive and and to see a moose just doing its thing first thing in the morning that stillness of the peacefulness of the boundary waters man i i was i was relaxing there just listening to you talk about that so that's incredible that's that's a great experience i've only seen a moose in the boundary waters uh once so hope i only have twice twice myself and like i said that was the first one it was it was pretty memorable for sure totally have you have you done the uh stairway to heaven portage i have not it's on my list for sure (laughs) Uh, i 
I got a solo trip planned that that includes that. So nice. it, it'll be knocked off pretty soon. That's uh, th- that that's one of those areas that took my breath away uh, in the yeah. Boundary Waters. That I just sat there in awe because you know you're looking out over this massive massive lake and and you have these uh the sawtooth mountains in the background just you know i call them mountains they're they're mountains by definition i'm, I'm gonna yeah. people people don't claim them to be it's, mountains but i'm gonna call them mountains I, yeah yeah I'll so, take it. so uh it, it's one of those places i you know like i say i could go back to several times in the future and still get the fascination out of it so i i yeah. can't wait to hear about that you'll have to tell me about that uh experience i definitely will yeah so uh um so you said you were taking a solo trip up there. What uh, I, I have a question based around that. You know, people take solo trips to the Boundary Waters all the time, and and uh, they're, they're, you know, what's your opinion on them? Solo trips? Then you know, is is that responsible? Safe? Is you know, should people be uh, doing these things, and and for what reasons? Yeah. So my my kind of overarching answer would be absolutely. You should be doing them. Um, is it responsible? Yes. Um, as long as you do it responsibly, obviously there's a little bit more that, that goes into it. Um, as far as, uh, especially kind of planning ahead and preparing, you know, letting loved ones know exactly where you're going to be exactly when they should expect you back, when to, to begin to worry if you're not back by, um, obviously there's options of carrying a satellite phone and GPS messenger, you know, a spot with you in case something were to happen. Um, and for me, it's, it's kind of knowing my body. I have terrible ankles. I roll my ankle and sprain my ankle all the time. Mm -hmm. So planning for that, uh, anytime, anytime on the boundary waters for the most part, I have an ankle brace on anytime I'm doing a solo trip. It's a hundred percent going to be something that I always have on. Um, so I think it just takes a little bit more planning, but I think that it's necessary to build that self-reliance and, and be willing to, totally. to kind of go out of your comfort zone because obviously yep. doing that for the first time for anyone, it's going to be out of your comfort zone. Yep. And that's, 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 that's the biggest thing, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's important for people to take that mental approach of this, this isn't the same trip I took with my friends a year ago. You know, this is not the same trip that I am planning with my, with my dad, you know, in a few weeks, this is, this is me going out solo. I need to have my bases covered. I need to make sure that there is a plan set in place. So like people know where I'm at, know what's going on. You know, if you don't hear from me from at this day, at this time, whatever, like, you know, here's what you need to do. And, and, uh, you know, not that you, obviously if you're going out anytime with or without other people, you should let people know when you're expected to be out, but right, saying, right. you know, uh, to, to go that extra measure and, and know your limitations and, and everything else. That's, that's a big thing, but also, uh, to, to take that trip and, and learn your limitations as well. Is yeah, huge, exactly. you know? So, so being able to go out and, and experience that wilderness and that peacefulness for, for your own self and everything that you want it to be, uh, is huge because, you know, go gain that connection with the land and with the boundary waters and with these wilderness areas, because, you know, we only have, we only have the boundary waters wilderness area in Minnesota. You know, we don't, we don't got much else for wilderness. So, you know, we, we have the waterways, we have the St. Croix and stuff like that. And, uh, 
the St. Louis is even a wilderness uh, waterway, but you know, for for the most part, it, you know, major exploration into the wilderness boundary waters is it for Minnesota. So, yeah, uh, but by all it's means, the biggest for sure, totally over a million acres. Yep. So by all means, like go and experience that and, and experience it, you know, on, on solo trips. But yeah, definitely take a good mental approach to that. And and hey, give Nick a call if you don't if you don't know yeah. uh, if you have uh, questions, yeah. you know. Uh, Ely Outfitters Company. Give Nick a call, and he'd be happy to give you info on how to how to successfully do a solo Boundary Waters trip. So, yeah, if you definitely, if anyone listening has any questions, just Google Ely Outfitting Company and and go to the website. Give us a call. I'll likely be the one answering the phone. I'm happy to help you out. Totally. Uh, so what in the Boundary Waters we have. We have hidden gems everywhere, uh, both yeah. impacted by man and nature. What I mean by man, I mean uh, there's old mines, there's uh, there's an old single-engine plane stashed in the woods up there, if not more. Uh, there's, you know, there's pictographs and stuff historically that goes way back. And, and then you have the natural stuff like waterfalls and all the different topography around there and the cliffs and obviously the lakes and rivers themselves. What, like what, what, in your opinion, what, what's the coolest hidden gem that you've found up there? So, yeah, that's a really good question. Cause there are plenty of them. Um, so for me, two things that I really, really enjoy um, just the, the pictographs would probably stick out the most. Um, you know, old, old Native American paintings. There's not a ton that is known about them. There are a ton of them scattered throughout the Boundary Waters and especially in Aquatico. For sure. Uh, they're really cool to see. Um, and yeah, so the, the one that I really like is the, the I wouldn't say it's a stashed plane. I would say it's a crashed plane. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so there's, there's an old, uh, an old bush plane, um, on crooked Lake up by the border. Okay. I don't know a ton about the history. I believe it's like a seventies ish plane. Okay. Um, from what I've heard from a few locals, the thought was that it was a couple poachers. Okay. I've heard this. Um, yep. Yeah, that were flying the plane. I don't know why or how they went down or, or any more than that. Um, to, to my understanding, it was the they were poaching beavers, and they took the plane or they flew the plane in to get their their pelts and everything, and the plane was unable to take back off because of the okay. weather conditions, and okay. they didn't have many options. Therefore, they had to. I, I guess that they tried to pull the plane up into the uh, woods to keep it out yeah. of sight, and then they hoofed out all their all their material by foot. So okay, yeah, and that makes sense. So maybe it is a stashed plane and not a crashed plane. Then just yeah. the state that it's currently in, there's it not much left. Looks, it's pretty wrecked. Yeah, yep. but that's um, a lot of bushwhacking. Yeah, you're telling me, man. And for what gain? I mean, for poaching beavers, yeah. like. Well, I yeah, mean, that's an interesting different one. day, different time, you know, but hey, yeah, if anybody true. listening knows the details on that story or any other Boundary Water stories, let me know because I would love to have you or anybody else on the show that can uh, tell some Boundary Water stories or, uh, um, you know, talk some history and stuff because that's, that's what this is all about. So, 
Yeah, I'd be curious as well. I got the lowdown on where Bigfoot's hiding, if anyone wants. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is where he is. I've I've heard rumors, um, and there used to be a lot of stuff online. I looked recently and couldn't find much, but there's a a lake at the end, very end of the Echo Trail, very western portion of the Boundary Waters Uh uh, called Lake, Lake Jeanette. Okay, and there were a few interesting stories posted online of of them people being camped out there and having logs and and things from the forest floor hurled at them and trees shaking and and, and weird cries in the middle of the night. Um, that's I cannot confirm any of this for myself, um, but that's just what I've heard. I love it. I, <laughs> you know any other uh, Boundary Waters folk tales? I, uh, no. I, I I could dive into Boundary Water stories forever. I mean, they're always fun. <laughs> yeah, I do not know a ton. Yeah, that's and that's the other thing. If you if if you ever hear of anybody in the future, you hear anything interesting, let me know because I'd even be down to do. Uh, I'm looking to start a little mini episode series of of storytelling of Minnesota storytelling. So uh, yeah. By, by all means, if anybody out there listening or you, Nick, know anybody or hear anything in the future, send them my way because we would love to have them on the show. But, Absolutely. Um, Tuesday afternoons are the hardest. Time just seems to stand still. Well, I've piled up quite a few of them now. About 20 years worth of not quite 3 o'clock. And time moves as it ever did. There ain't nothing you can do. Slow it down. into into some of the ethics and everything else surrounding the boundary waters uh you know the bwca is is a pretty delicate place um you know we have lnt principles in 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 place the leave no trace principles in place that uh allow us to care for it and treat treat it with respect can you can you explain to everybody a little bit what what lnt is and what its purpose is yeah, absolutely. So LNT, Leave No Trace, seven principles that are kind of designed to allow us humans to recreate in a wilderness place with, uh, well, at the same time, leaving as minimal an impact as we can. Um, so you're talking, I'm going to go off the top of my head here. I bet I remember all seven of them. Um, plan ahead and prepare. Camp, travel and camp on durable surfaces. Dispose of waste, believe what you find, respect wildlife, minimize campfire impacts, and be considerate of other visitors. I'm pretty sure that's the seven. I believe so, yeah. It, they, were, they were drilled into our head in, in EOE. Um, pretty heavily. And, and now working alongside a place like the Boundary Waters, um, it'd be becomes very evident why they're in place and and it is important to to follow them to the best of, of your ability totally the first time i heard about the leave no trace principles i was like yeah okay you know yeah. <laughs> like uh, honestly like that was my initial reaction was okay i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna have a campfire with wood like less thickness of my wrist are you kidding yeah. me like 
Yeah, because my my Grand Rapids mind was okay. If I'm having a fire, I'm building that thing big enough for me to be warm, and everybody else standing around it. Totally, exactly. So yep. like, you know, uh, but but you're you're right. It's it's a very real thing. It's very true. And and if you follow these principles, you you ultimately have have a better experience all around. Because if if yeah. you do your part, you're doing the right thing, and 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 you're making sure that your experience up there isn't ruining somebody else's experience up there you know that 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 thought goes a long way because uh again one of the first times i was ever in the boundary waters as a college student i literally whipped out my phone turned my music on and like i had it on for about most of that first day before somebody in my group came up and was like yo enough like shut that thing off and like don't ever turn it on again yeah and uh and and that's when it finally became real for me was you know somebody finally came up and was like dude like cut it out you know you're you're ruining my experience up here and and that hit home so i was like all right i i get it now and from that point forward i kind of started following the ethics and the principles much more closely and since doing that i feel a lot better about how i spend my time in the boundary waters so yeah i feel like it also allows you to have a better experience for sure do you see many uh people heading up to the boundary waters in the winter time winter camping doing stuff like that through ely yeah so we get a, a ton of a ton of ice fishing um, on folks that come up here and travel in by foot, snowshoe, ski, which is awesome. Something I do myself. Um, and then we have multiple in Ely dog sled kennels that run wilderness trips through the boundary waters throughout the winter. Right on. Um, and they all kind of do it a little bit differently um, as far as where they sleep. If they do a hot tent, if they do a cold tent, how far are they traveling? Quincy. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a full gambit. You see people build Quincy's up there? Not a ton in the Boundary Waters because okay. it, it takes multiple days to build one. Right. And you, you then have to destroy it once you're done once using you're done. it. Yep. So that's just, and the conditions need to be good over those few days that you're building it. And right. you have to have a willingness and a knowledge to, to build them. Yep. Um, so I thought more UMD just as practice um, and kind of learning how to how to do it. I thoroughly enjoy them, and usually when I winter camp, I do not a Quincy, but a version of that where we kind of dig a few feet down into the snow, take some sticks, and set them at snow level. Put sure. a tarp over the top of it, so it's kind of a snow shelter. Yep. It is a lot warmer than sleeping in, you know, like a three season tent, obviously. Yeah. Um, pretty quiet. My, uh, my first experience inside of Quincy, I'm f- extremely claustrophobic. <laughs> and I started panicking as soon as I got inside of that thing. But yeah. I do have to admit, the best sleeping experience I've ever had in my life, winter camping, happened when I was sleeping in a Quincy. <laughs> yep. It was. I. It was gnarly. I have both of those things, definitely. When I first got in there and, and three or four more people got in and we were shoulder to shoulder, and I was like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Yep. Where, where, the, where the heck am I going to sleep? Yep. Um, and then once you get comfortable and, and relax a little bit, you can see that exit and, and know you can get out at any time. And the, and the shelter that you help build is, is secure enough to, to not crumble on top of you. Yep. Um, yeah, it's so quiet, even in a windy day. 
And the Boundary Waters in the winter is so quiet anyway because sure. the, the wind just blows right through the trees. You don't hear you can hear everything, but it's just so quiet. And you get in that cleansing, you can't hear anything. Right, yeah. Um, it, so I slept great in there. Maybe that's what I should do for a recording studio for the wintertime. I'll build a yep. Quincy, and that'll just be my soundproof room that I, do, that I do my interviews inside of. That would be fun, man. Have guests come do interviews in the Quincy. And... In the Quincy yeah. you'd, have to, you'd have to do a YouTube then. You'd make, make it a full show. Yeah, there you go. I, I do I do plan to... I ordered my first DSLR camera. I do plan to start throwing some video content out there from out your back door, but uh, that would be that would be wild. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you have a cooler, uh, uh, a soundproof room, and a studio all in one. It'd be perfect. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Can't beat it. Just shove so, your beer in the wall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um. So we all, we're we're kind of wrapping up here, getting closer to the end. We got a couple more questions for you, and then and then we'll do our fun little uh, activity at the end. I, I I like to do something fun with each guest. So. Um, just the last few questions we have here are, are following more so around what, like, well, my last big question is what what we can do as doing our part as users of the Boundary Waters. Um, you know, there there is a lot of controversy surrounding the Boundary Waters with, with the mining debate and, and everything going on with that. And, and the Boundary Waters has been in the news and it's it's been on people's radar and a hot topic all around Minnesota, but we tend to overlook some of the small stuff that we have impact wise. Uh, so through, through all of this and, um, you know, what, what is, what, what, obviously some of the other threats to the boundary waters are, are campfire impacts, invasive species, pollution, you know, all that type of stuff. Uh, so what do you think we can do as collectively as a user group of the boundary waters to, uh, ultimately keep it pristine and and the best that it possibly can be yeah so that's a good that's a great question two things that i think are huge the first is an overarching of just getting young people outdoors and more specifically getting young people into the boundary waters to understand what it's about and appreciate it and want it to be a place that they want that they want to protect um I think is the biggest thing you can do because without that, people aren't going to know, people aren't going to appreciate it. Um, and another thing that you touched on that I think is is becoming more and more of a big deal um, every day kind of throughout the state is, is the aquatic invasive species and the spread and how little there is that we can do to stop that spread per se. Sure. Um, so, uh, and especially in the boundary waters where you know, you're not having motorboats that are that are draining their bilges or or carrying, you know, certain plant species from one body of water to the next. Uh, it's something that we try to do really well, uh, the outfitter that I work for as far as educating people on that. Um, but it's tough. I mean, some of these aquatic invasive species live on your fishing line. Right. They live on your anchor bag. They live on your paddle. They sit on the outside of your canoe. So just educating and people on that, um, I think is, is pretty important for sure. Yeah. And that's, I like anything. Um, I think it it all starts right there with that education. If, if you put in the time and, and you, and, and you, and you know, you start sharing your knowledge with everybody and, you know, good and bad and, and, and people start, uh, you know, picking up that, you know, it's, it's everybody doing their part, then, 
yeah. you know, that mentality is an easy one to drive home. But with the with the education aspect of it, like if you don't plant that seed and, and you don't and you don't uh, start like informing people early on and getting kids interest and for adults, for that matter, too. I know plenty of yeah, adults that sure. are, are, are learning are learning L&T principles and are learning new ethics and are, you know, and as long as that education continues to expand, so will so will all the positivity that surrounds the boundary waters. So, uh well, let's wrap up with a fun little question here, yeah. and then yeah, we'll we'll be on our way. But last question here: uh, everybody that comes out of the Boundary Waters has their routine. At least people who are in there regularly, right? Uh, you know, and I know each one of those routines is unique to its own self. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that routine looked like? Yeah, it's definitely pretty specific. Um, and for me, it kind of helps make every trip come full circle. So, you know, you get back in the car and you're driving back to town and it's usually pretty quiet or you're listening to music and you got that feeling of, of reflecting on everything that you just went through. Yep. And then for me, what really transitions me back, um, and I'm glad that, that you have a similar one, um, the first thing is a poop obviously <laughs> um, can't go without it it's no, gotta it, come it's a nice yeah, comfortable yeah. one warm yeah <laughs> and then after that what really transitions me is the shower i always get in the shower whether i'm really hot from a trip or whether i'm really cold from a trip i always hop in the shower it feels like you're kind of in a good you're washing away the dirt and grime that you've collected over you know however many days you've been out even (laughs) if you just went out for the day um and for me when i hop out of that that's when it's like full circle and i'm kind of back to reality um in that sort of thing and i like to not use my cell phone until i've done all of that for sure um for me kind of mentally it's just like i said the whole trip coming full circle and kind of compartmentalizing that experience is kind of accumulated in, in me taking a shower and then it's all done. Um, as weird as that sounds. Totally. And it's, I, I love that you touched on the cell phone. I, I actually love that you brought that up cause that's, that's major. I, yeah. I tell everybody that I've brought to the boundary waters for their first time. I said right now, I bet you're starting to feel kind of relaxed. I said, I bet you're a little nervous, but you're probably starting to relax, aren't you? And I usually ask them this as we're like leaving Duluth. You know what I mean? Like it feels good to be going up here, doesn't it? And everybody gets that. Yup, they do. And, and it's not until, you know, we're on our way home that I usually point out to them, like, you know, they'll turn their phone on and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm getting text after text after text. Yeah. I'm getting message yeah. after message. I have missed calls. I have all this stuff to do. And yeah. I still refuse to turn my phone on. And I always I always ask them, I say, how, how do you feel now? <laughs> does your, yeah. does your uh, Can you feel that anxiety and that tension and that everyday life starting to seep back into your life? And do you feel your yeah. shoulders starting to you know, tense back up because you have to go back to everyday life? And, and nine times out of ten, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It is a physical feeling. As soon as you turn that phone back on and you're connected to, to the real world again, I mean, it quickly becomes apparent how incredibly relaxed and incredibly peace at peace you were you know up in the boundary waters and that's yeah and that's what this is all about nick being able to share that with people and 
hopefully some people listening have never bound, been to the Boundary Waters and they'll want to experience that now. But, I mean, the Boundary Waters is a pretty powerful and special place. And, and I'm, I'm really happy that you were able to share everything that you did today because uh, you brought a lot of insight and a lot of good info to, to the show. And on top of that, it was awesome to be able to reminisce with you a little bit about about college and outdoor pursuits and everything. So. It has been an absolute joy having you on the show. Uh, while I still have you, I want to give you an opportunity to tell anybody and everybody listening uh, what you or uh, Ely Outfitters Company might have going on or you know what's going on around you. If you have any plugs, now is the time. Please plug away. Yeah, so I won't do too much um, other than say if you, if you are looking to do a trip or any of this interests you, um, definitely do not hesitate to, to give us a call. I'll, we'll, we'll help you out. We're all about getting folks out in the wilderness, having experiences. Um, yeah, just Google Ely Outfitting Company and Boundary Waters Guide Service, and, and we'll be there. There you go. Well, that's uh, the Boundary Waters with Bales. That's what I'm going to start calling this segment every time I have you on like the show it. talking boundary waters. <laughs> like awesome. Well, hey, you have a you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you again. Um, stay safe during all this Corona stuff. Keep washing yeah, your hands. Do, you. do your Definitely. part. Everybody, wash your hands. Stay home. Don't do anything stupid. Please. Totally. So, all right, Nick. Well, thank you again, and uh, you, yeah, it's been you, a pleasure. You a great time, everybody out there. Beautiful. We're signing off. Y'all have a wonderful one. Thank you. See ya. Thank you all for tuning in. That was a really fun episode. I really enjoyed talking to Nick, and I really enjoyed uh, everything he had to share about the Boundary Waters and, you know, reminiscing on UMD, and, yeah, it was just a really good time. So, anyway, through all those transitions, you heard uh, Charlie Parr uh, over the Red Cedar. So, per usual, here's that full recording. After that, y'all go enjoy the day. It's a beautiful one. Thanks, y'all. Have a good one.
Thank you. 